evening, bro. How you doing, brother? I am great. I can't complain. Um, another week of multitasking. Another week of trying to probably fit a little bit too much in. How about yourself? Yeah, pretty much the same. I've had some good successes. So with everybody working at home, my job, which is effectively a consultant, has been really difficult. Part of my job is getting loads of people in the same room and getting them to shout at each other for a couple of minutes until some uh, decisions are made. Uh, doing that via Zoom or Skype business isn't the best way of getting some really useful output. But I've formulated a virtual way of running some of those strategy workshops. And it's going well. And it's something that I've learned a lot of lessons through about how people can collaborate effectively in this new era. And the thing about it is, is as soon as it works well, there's no reason to go back. Definitely. Uh, I'm pleased that you call it a new era because this could last a few years. Um, earlier this week, I was thinking about um, wartime periods and when did life actually go back to normal? And I imagine it, it would have taken a few years. So people capitalizing on the new initiatives or ways of just doing life and familiarizing themselves with that is just so important because that might be the way forward for a long period of time. And that, that point about normal, you know, what is normal? I think anybody who's holding on to the idea that things are going to go back to the way they were at the beginning of 2019 is going to have a big surprise coming to them. So I think it's about appreciating that things aren't going to be the same. And this is a great opportunity to accept new, different trends, new ways of working, new, new lessons. And yeah, just either embrace it or die, really. Definitely. And new podcasts. So welcome to Expensive Lessons, um, a podcast where we share expensive lessons within our journey, but also try to share the expensive lessons of other people. So we're really excited about today because we actually have a guest on the show. Um, now, this is a friend of Abby and ours, um, Nathan Adebaje. Now, he is a film director, creator himself. Um, previously, he um, ran a weekly workshop called The Collective. So this is where people were able to come monthly to network. This included filmmakers and actors, and then they were able to offer script reads and feedback was given on what they were doing. But this is someone who is really invested into filmmaking. Um, his latest film, Alpha and Omega, was screened in the Pan-African Film Festival in LA, which was awesome. And Fortunately, that was just before lockdown, and debuted at the BFI last December. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to share in terms of expensive lessons, because I imagine many of our previous conversations have been heavily geared towards people who are on the other side of entrepreneurship and might not necessarily themselves be creatives. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that was the intro, man. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 this is your option to actually introduce yourself properly. So, um, who is Nathan Adabaji? Um, Nathan Adabaji is a a film finance, um, I suppose, manager by day and a filmmaker by night. Um, I have a full time role in a in an investment company um, that invests in kind of feature films, but I have aspirations i suppose to, to be a creative and a, and a filmmaker myself um and so 
evenings, weekends, um, anytime possible. Um, I, I kind of try and be creative, whether that's making films or or trying to make music videos and, and working on the craft that is kind of directing. Mm. Now, people listening to this might tell from your surname that your grandparents weren't Vikings. Um, so as a, a filmmaker, a film manager, um, how did you stumble across that? And at what point did it become real for you? Um, I've always had a passion for the arts. Um, so my kind of start in, in the creative arts was being Baloo in the Jungle, jungle Book when I was in year two. Um, okay. And I think I always just loved kind of performing, um, et cetera. And as I went through school, uh, was very much part of like kind of theatre clubs, et cetera. Um, I did stuff with the National Youth Theatre, um, performed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. But I think I wasn't uh, as risky as others coming from, well, I'm half Jamaican, half Ghanaian. Um, but there was no way that I was going to be going to drama school or anything like that. My dad was always like education, education, education. And so I went and did a kind of business degree at university. Um, and then I kind of, I don't, I don't, I'm someone who never really likes to uh, wait for things. So I kind of gave up on acting in terms of kind of going for auditions and, and the power being in someone else's hands. And so when I, once I graduated, and although I was working in uh, kind of the corporate world, I decided to, to try and become a filmmaker and actually start creating content and putting the opportunities in the hands of other people. Uh, That's fascinating because we've spoken about pivoting previously, and it sounds like you decided to pivot when you saw there was a lack of control. Um, you chose to do it now, almost harking back to our previous episode. And as you couldn't necessarily get those roles when you wanted to. You decided to create them for yourselves. Yeah. And it was, it was also because the roles that I kind of wanted weren't really there for me at the time. So this is bearing in mind, especially when I was kind of properly doing a lot of kind of theatre, et cetera. This is probably 15 years ago. Um, this is when the only real roles for a black guy was Gus on EastEnders or um, someone in the bill being like Chase Bob. Or Baloo. Exactly, or Baloo. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, so I kind of didn't really see the variety or the stories that I was interested in or that I felt um, I wanted to see on, uh, on screen. Um, and so that kind of harks back to why I thought, actually, let me try and create those stories myself and um, see some of the things that I've seen and experienced that aren't the kind of typical hood thing that you just see them uh, or worsening at the time. Um, yeah. Can you, can you expand upon that in terms of creating those, those stories that you didn't see yourself? What, what were they exactly? Um, I suppose it's just the variety. So even just you, like being around you guys, right. And, and, and others, the, the kind of conversations that you're having um, in a kind of tower the Heron Tower in uh, Liverpool Street. Like, you never see those kind of business-oriented conversations and the kind of working professionals, etc. Back then, it was a lot of... And I, I like kid adulthood and adulthood, but it was there was just that same narrative and there wasn't a broad kind of variety. You didn't see uh, a doctor or people going through miscarriages, etc. And, and so I kind of wanted to try and show... A, a wider variety of different types of stories so 
for example, the first film I did make um, that I wrote and directed was, or I co-wrote and directed, so it was um, about a young kind of black couple who had just been through a miscarriage. Um, and it was about the kind of different approaches of dealing with grief. It was just inspired by a conversation I had with someone at work where she, her parents had had a miscarriage. She had a younger brother that unfortunately hadn't survived and she was always quite, um, or felt it, there was an, a, a silence or something that was never kind of said whereby the mum always wanted to kind of talk about this and kind of use that as a way to grieve, whereas the dad just didn't want to talk about it and just felt, you know, put it to the back in mind and move forward. And I always thought those two different extremely opposed ways of dealing with grief would be quite interesting to then show in a short film and um, show the tension that arises from that. And I think just nuanced stories like that, you never really see um, black people at the centre of. That's quite a long-winded way of answering the question, but I hope that makes <laughs> It definitely does. I'll, I'll be interested to hear Abby's take, but it's fascinating because I know that many entrepreneurs sell feelings, but you create them. Um, and I think that's extremely powerful because as, as human beings, we are all drawn towards certain emotions and feelings. I was having a conversation earlier today with someone about captions on Instagram, and I was trying to help her to understand that you need to capture, caption, you need to capture the emotion that that person might be feeling at that time, possibly linked to that picture. Yeah. And that's what's most likely going to make them like it because they're already liking something that they're feeling. There's that affinity there. Um, and it's just amazing hearing it from a filmmaker. But it's interesting that you say that because although you're kind of capturing an emotion, you're not necessarily in control of the emotion of what that evokes in an mm. audience. Does that make sense? Mm. So two people may see the same thing and, or, and, and kind of deal with it in different ways. Exactly this, the kind of the film that I was talking about, the short film that I was talking about that could cause someone to kind of break down and cry or someone to dismiss and be like, oh no, that doesn't exist. Um, I don't know. It's, but that's what I think is the power of, of film in general. Um, the fact that it can give you insight into different worlds, et cetera, and, and help you empathize or, or just have a window into something that you might not necessarily have any kind of awareness of. Yeah. And hopefully learn from it or, or take something at least from it. Abby, I've got a couple of thoughts, really. I think my my first question, Nathan, is what what do you think of the state of Black British cinema at the moment? It's a good question. Um, it's weird because if you think if I think about how I felt about Black British cinema fifteen years ago when I was a teen. Um, Growing up in school, I think at that time you only saw really the likes of adulthoods, kid adulthood, etc. Bullet Boy before that, and that was really the only kind of black experience that was told by maybe a, a black creative um, that you'd see. Whereas now, particularly in theatre, you see a lot more kind of nuances um, and different experiences. In film, I think there are more. There's a, a wider variety, but you can see from the, from the fact that a lot of black British actors and actresses are going to the States for, for more interesting roles. There, there's, there is not enough. I watched recently Gangs of London, 
Um, I don't know if you've seen that. Um, Shopei Disuru um, is the lead in that, and it's, there's no kind of mention of his kind of race or anything like that. He's literally just a undercover detective that is um, infiltrating some of the international gang network within within London, um, and that's I think where we want to get to with black filmmaking in the UK that the films aren't necessarily specifically um, about the colour of your skin, but it could be about a culture or, or it could just be a story and the, and the character just so happens to be black, if that makes sense. Um, I feel like at the moment, although there's a wider variety, your, your race is still kind of a kind of driving factor in the narrative. Whereas actually where we want to get to is that these are just, just stories and there's so many, there's a wide variety of different people's experiences and stories that you can see. I, I, I completely see where you're coming from and this might sound quite controversial but there was a, a film that came out quite recently I think it was called Blue Story um, <laughs> and I, I was speaking to a friend of mine and they said oh have you seen Blue Story yet and I, I, I said no uh, and they've said you know are you going to go and see it I said I already know what happens um, and the reason why I feel that way is because I feel like I've seen that, that same movie yeah. multiple times and that's no slight on the actors in that instance. It's just, I, I feel like our, our culture is normally portrayed in one way yeah, on screen. So for me to go and pay to watch that again just didn't feel, didn't feel right. Because it's literally just a 2020 version of adulthood, adulthood bullet boy before that, all that stuff. So I agree with you. I think the nuance then, then is actually there was another film recently that was released, I think it was towards the back end of last year, called The Last Tree. It was about a um, a Nigerian, a young Nigerian guy who was adopted by a white family out in Essex um, and kind of just his his conflicts kind of growing up in that environment, etc., so I think the problem is actually there is a wider variety of black British films and filmmakers out there, but the establishment choose to give wider distribution to the likes of Blue Story, all that stuff, because they know it's a tried and tested. They know that there's a market there that's going to buy it uh, or go to the cinema to see it, um, whereas we don't know with some of these other narratives. And that's the problem with the film industry in general, that they just keep showing the same kind of film because they know that it makes money. And and this is the point where I get really interested because this links back to my business mind. And, you know, the Marvel franchise is a great example of a series of movies that all fo follow a very similar tried and tested formula. You yeah. could argue that it was innovative the way that they did it initially and the way that they created a cinematic universe. But what that led to is a whole bunch of copycats. So then you had the, the DC universe. You even had the Universal universe, which I think only su only succeeded with one film. Um, and then it fell apart because they, they released The Mummy yeah. to try and launch their cinematic universe first. That flopped. And then they said, okay, well, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, yeah. But what, what it ties to for me is the importance of innovation. Some yeah. of my favorite films, or series were groundbreaking in their time. So if I think of my favorite series of all time, The Wire, I think if you remember 
the time that the wire came out. Yet came out. It was about gangsters in Baltimore, but there was so much nuance to it. You actually got to see that some of these people were educating themselves. You got to see how they experienced the school system. You got to see how the journalists would report on gang culture. You got to see how mayors and governors would get elected in that environment. Um, part of its success was that the writer was embedded in that environment. He was a journalist at the time. Mm. But nobody had really seen that type of content before. And as a result, as a result, I think it was you know, critically acclaimed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, the challenge is identifying what would break the mold, but also taking that risk. Yeah, and I think it's the same, same but different. Um, I, I had no idea where I heard it. Um, I mean, I can try and say I coined it now, but um, but I think that's why you're seeing now, at least with the Marvel franchises, Black Panther. It's the same thing, but actually within, they've kind of flipped, not flipped the context, but it's a predominantly black um, cast. Yeah, cast. Um, so Wonder Woman, again, was a big tentpole thing because the lead is actually a, a woman. Um, and so I feel like the film industry is changing, but it's still same, same, but different, if that makes sense, because they're still say, using the same models. And innovation will be a lot slower, particularly when there's a lot of... Um, the vast majority of films don't make money. And, so, and because the costs of promoting a film are so large... The industry is so, so risk averse. Um, I, I've got a tough question for you. Yeah. Um, what does innovation look like in film? So, in in terms of what what the next big transformational thing could be, what would your suggestion about the next groundbreaking movement in film be? Uh, but there are some cinemas that, that um, use like other senses, if that makes sense. So say you're in the forest and you can smell, uh, and there are like, I don't know, roses or whatever, they'll pump roses, uh, the smell of roses into the cinema. So it's actually stimulating more senses. Um, for me, a, a big thing that I've kind of thought about, and it actually, I think it is even more relevant than now, is not necessarily film, but um, live live events so football for example right we're in this kind of covid world etc i've thought for a long time what if you had vr headsets which were linked to cameras in the stadium and you could watch live sport live theater like you're actually in the um in the auditorium or the stadium etc you could suddenly literally broadcast that experience to so many more than just the people in the ground and they're getting that kind of live experience. I think that could revolutionise. When you said um, VR, I thought you were going to say something else because VR and football, my first thought was, let's put body cams on the players. Okay, yeah. I, want, I want to be Ronaldo for the day. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 yeah. that'd be sick. They do that in adverts as well, actually, where you're literally like the player and you're kind of dribbling through people. But, um, mm. but yeah, so I don't know. In terms of film, there is a trend towards kind of user-generated content, which is, I think, something that we'll come on to later. Um, I think the big thing is actually people's attention spans are getting smaller and smaller. And so actually you're going to start seeing kind of Snapchat films or um, films that are specifically for smaller screen formats. 
uh, for mobile phones. You can just watch it on your commute, etc. There's actually a really interesting um, Danish kids series, which is kind of like a new age skins, whereby throughout the day they'd give you snippets of like five to ten minutes. If the scene is kids walking to school, playing around and all that stuff, they'd release it at 8.40 when kids are in, in on their way to school. If this, the scene is a party scene at like 2 a.m. in the morning, that's when they would release it. Um, and then at the end of the day, they would then stitch all of those kind of um, videos together in order to make an episode. Um, they had huge success in Scandinavia. They've, they've made replica series of it or spin-offs in France, Italy, um, Germany. They're talking about remaking it in the US. I think there's definitely something in that kind of model, um, particularly for this generation that doesn't necessarily have a longer, long attention span to sit through anything. Um, yeah. etc. Interject, by the way, man. I feel like I, I'm talking for a long time. <laughs> We are here to listen to you. Um, just listening about that idea of filmmaking is genius because you are linking it to, you are forcing the individual who is viewing to participate in it. Yeah. At the time that they're giving it, they are probably doing a similar thing. Um, there, there were news articles literally about scenes whereby people are in um, kind of clubs late at night and you'd actually see people out in clubs looking at the, they'd actually take time out of a night out to, to start watching it. So, so yeah, it's exactly that. So um, my question is around innovation and creation. So we've spoken about how there is almost a lack of innovation and not because there aren't creatives out there, but because the film industry is uh, extremely profitable and everyone is trying to make a profit. And the quickest way to make a profit is to follow the set formulas. Um, how do creatives, how do you go about raising capital um, to do something which is different or just follow the, the formula which is set previously? So I think there's, there's two parts of this. Where I'm at in, in my kind of creative process is that I am making short films. Um, so I think there'd be a different approach to raising finance for a feature film, which is my day job, to a short film, which is what I do on the side. Um, do you want me to go through both or just go through Please, please do. Yeah. So in terms of my own personal um, uh, stuff on the side, so short films, it's, it's basically ultimately, right? Short films are a kind of proof of concept or prototype um, which showcase what you can do or it could be a proof of concept for a feature film or TV series, etc. So a short version of what you you could potentially do further down the line. Um, I think people understand that actually with short films, there isn't necessarily a business model to make the money back or anything like that. So actually you're tapping into people's um, emotions, exactly like you mentioned before. Um, if I think about Alpha and Omega when I was raising finance for that, we it's about a Rastafari couple. The, the, the woman... Um, finds out that she has a well she has a secret that she's hiding from her partner um which then causes tension in their relationship so we reached out to rastafari kind of communities to try and um see whether or not they would put um, some money in we reached out to vegan restaurants we went to kind of black creative 
um, companies um, to to ruin the story. It's also it's basically about cancer. So the, the woman finds out she has cancer and is basically torn because her her then taking chemotherapy would conflict with her um, faith because they believe in natural medicines, etc. So because of that, we also reached out to a variety of cancer charities, etc. So people who would have a vested affinity in the kind of subject matter to see if we can raise finance. The it was a written by a female, um, directed, co-produced. Um, so a large um, number of the creative team were female. So again, we reached out to um, female-led platforms like Galdem, etc., and to to promote it. So I think one approach is to to reach out to people who have a vested interest or affinity with um, the the content of the film that you're making. Um, and then there's various kind of regional grants um, or government grants um, backed by like the BFI, et cetera, that you can also try and tap into. Um, and then there's also friends and family. <laughs> and to be honest with you, although we did all those other things that I mentioned, most of the money that um, came from uh, for, for the last film that I made, which had a budget of 5,000, was from friends and family. I did a crowdfunding campaign and, and I think we had 104 backers in the end and all of them were people I know, people, other, um, some of the cast and crew knew, etc. And it's just basically just pooling our networks to... Um, to raise the finance to make the film. I've taken a lot of notes um, because yeah. <laughs> there are so many lessons in what you just shared. It's crazy. And I'm trying to summarize some of the key points. I think the first point that I've taken away from that is to raise funds to support your vision, you must do your research. Now, yeah. you talk about the fact that there is no guaranteed return on investment for a short film. Um, there's no guaranteed return on investment for any business prospect at all. But from a, a short film perspective, you've done an immense amount of research in order to compel a potential investor and get them on board. And from my experiences, a lot of the small businesses that I've worked with haven't done anywhere near enough similar research on their target customer, their target audience, their potential investors that they can work with, and even just going into an environment where they can test their idea, make sure that it's relevant to their audience, is such a val valuable uh, exercise. The work that you did to make sure that your product was authentic and your product being your, 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 your screenplay, your, your, your film, should be emulated in any industry. We need to go and hit the ground and make sure that the product that I produce rings true with the people that it's there to serve definitely um and the other point that i took from that was you, when you were looking for investment you were looking at people who had a vested interest in the story that you wanted to tell so these were people who already potentially had an interest in the environment um had some sort of emotional link to what it is that you were doing and once again the lesson for anybody in business is when you are looking for investment, don't just go to somebody who's got a bit of cash but yeah. has no links to what you're trying to do. 
go to people who actually care because not only would they be more willing to put their hands in their pocket, but they're probably more willing to support it as the story develops or as your product develops as well. So for me, that was really valuable. I think the other lesson that we've learned that we've shared on this podcast before is friends, families, and fools <laughs> is such a valuable resource yeah. when you're starting out. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, yes, in the creative industry, these are this is your bread and butter. This is something that you must do in order to be successful in raising funds. But any industry, by applying that best practice, you will be you will be more successful. And I should say, actually, when we first um, were trying to raise finance, we did meet a kind of, not necessarily a high net worth, but basically a, a girl that I knew from university who um, had come into some her- inheritance. And she was like, oh, like, I'm looking to, I met her at a short film screening and she wanted to kind of invest in a film. And I was like, great, literally six grand or whatever I think I was asking her for. Um, but that didn't ultimately, ultimately materialise. Um, which is, but already I had kind of had all those other things in motion. So I think the key thing for me, at least, is your your spread betting. You're not just counting on one person because ultimately that um, that could fall through, and you're then at the mercy again. Going back to what I was saying before, the control is not necessarily in your hands if you're literally just relying on one thing. Um, so yeah, listening to you, it it helps me to realise that. <laughs> A lot of people think that they can start a business, but very few people think that they can shoot or create a film. And thus there's a greater level of work which goes into it, um, into the raising of finances, but also the budgeting. So what's two questions? Um, First question is, how did you go about budgeting, especially for those business owners who aren't actually thinking about their budgets? How did you do it? And secondly, Maybe this might be to all of us. Why is it that many business owners do not do their due diligence in the way that Nathan has done? Um, um, so the, f- the first question in terms of budget, um, we had, because ultimately we were trying to raise finance, but um, we didn't know how much we would actually raise. So we had a kind of blue sky budget, which I think was about 14000 We had a uh mid-range budget which was around i think six thousand and then a a low budget which was three thousand and then i suppose even lower than that would have just literally been whatever money we could kind of put together ourselves um and so ultimately we would scale up the resources that we were using or the sets that we were kind of um building or the camera equipment that we were renting based on what we ultimately then received in in funds um in terms of budgeting it's kind of you just again do research and i can't make claim that i did everything because ultimately it was a production team of myself um the director also helped and i had a co-producer um so there's probably about three of us um that that was responsible for both kind of raising finance, building the budget, um, and ultimately ultimately producing the film. Um, but yeah, so, so we had those three budgets. And then the second question was, sorry? Well, uh, we, we get to the second question. We need to stay here for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Um, what I took from that was that um, you had budget tiers. Yeah. But I'm trying to almost squeeze out all of. So, so for example, on the on the lower end, I think I've got a, a kind of low budget camera. Um, it's a GH4. Can shoot on 4K, so it can still shoot um, the standard that's needed for like cinemas, etc. Um, and I've got one lens. We would just use that. Doesn't cost any money. If on the kind of lower end budget. Um, we'd probably try and just shoot outside for most of it, use natural light um, on the kind of lower budget. We would try and just basically set it. The, the film Alfred Omega had a bedroom um, allotment scene, uh, a hall scene where they had like a reasoning kind of session, um, a uh, restaurant scene, etc. So some of these locations I could just have in my house. Um, for example, the bedroom scene, I could have loop in a friend to get a garden to do an allotment scene um, on the lower end budget. In the mid range budget, you could actually go out to a um, an allotment um, and try and shoot there and pay them some money. What actually happened was we then found a kind of allotment, which was a community-based one, and they just let us shoot for free. And we basically just took some stills for still photography and videos and gave it to them as kind of content for them to use for their publicity. Um, but I suppose the point I'm making is that um, at each budget level allowed us to kind of rent more expensive equipment mm. or pay for things or pay for services as opposed to trying to get them for free or gave us kind of higher quality equipment in terms of camera equipment, lighting equipment, um, meant that maybe we could pay actors rather than just getting paying expenses only, etc. So because with filmmaking, there's so many moving parts. Um, ultimately, it was a case of having a kind of bare bones um, budget, a mid-range budget, and a if we had all the money in the world, what would we, how much would we need a uh, budget? So I think, I think today is going to be the, the birth of Salty Abbey. Because I'm feeling quite salty. <laughs> um, I think one of the challenges that people have when they start a business is they only have a premium budget in mind. Yeah. And there's a roadblock because they say, unless I get £20,000, I can't start. But what I'm seeing in, in, in your planning is you've got the premium blue sky ambition. But you've also got the, I'm going to roll my sleeves up and make this work with the resources I have in front of me uh, plan as well. And yeah. I love the idea of having it tiered three ways. So you've kind of got the premium, the mid-range and the basic. And having those three tiers just allows people to get moving, even if they don't have that many resources. And, and what we eventually did was give ourselves a deadline to say, you know what, let's... Let's plan a date. This is the date we're shooting, um, which then gave us a, a kind of a target of, okay, well, regardless of at this date, however much money we have, that's what we're shooting it for, um, which is pressure. Um, but, I mean, I worked in a sales role, so I just used it. I, my mindset was literally, let's just create this as a, a kind of sales target. How many people do I need to hit up a day? Of those people, how many are actually going to give um me some or how many are going to respond of those people how many are actually going to make a donation on that day 
Um, and how many people do I need to make pay on that day to get, say, I think I, I think I worked out it was about £100 a day for about 60 days. And that's what I kind of was trying to average. Does that math make sense? That's what I think I was trying to average um, in order to hit our kind of Indiegogo or crowdfunding target, um, as well as trying to go to high net worth, et cetera. So, so as much as you being a creative and having an artistic vision, you needed a really firm grasp of your numbers. Yeah. Basically. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing your day job definitely uh, helped with that? Uh, I wasn't in this day job at okay. the time. But well, also my day job at the time in terms of sales didn't necessarily need the numbers, but my day job now, definitely I do. I'm, I'm using Excel literally all day, all day, every day, for hours and hours. I want I want to talk a little bit about Afalabi's second question. Please. If I remember right, it was, why are people not doing this? Well, please, in, uh, introduce that question again. It, it, it's painful because we're seeing a creative here and it, you would almost assume that it's those who are selling a product, a tangible hard product um, in a store or online who will do their due diligence. But here we're seeing creators having to go through that process of effectively budgeting and accounting for every penny. Why is it that so many business startups fail to do their due diligence in terms of research and budgeting? Well, I, I think I've got a suggestion as to why. And I'll, I'll, I'll posit that suggestion in the form of a question to Nathan. And I'll, I'll ask Nathan the question, how easy was it for you to balance your full-time job with all of the other ad hoc activities required for you to um, succeed and get funding? How, how did you find that? Uh, it's, it's never easy, but for me, <laughs> me is a no-brainer. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm any we even lunch breaks, even to honest with you, slightly at work, I was still trying to do. I was taking calls with, um, what's it called, the local council, so I could secure um, a spot on a market in order to shoot a scene on the market. Um, just five minutes during work. Um, it wasn't wasn't easy, but I think if you're passionate enough about something, you'll you'll find the time. You'll make time. Um, what about your evenings? How are your evenings? As in my evenings were spent doing this. It was literally evenings, weekends. I would take um, holiday to do stuff. Well, I took holiday to shoot it. I took maybe four days off or two days either side of a weekend in order to, to kind of make it. Um, so, so if I'm hearing right, we're talking lunch breaks and um, tea breaks. Tea breaks, evenings, weekends, holidays. So, so my suggestion is that the reason why people aren't doing this is because it sounds a little bit too much like hard work. Yeah. This is salty, Abby. I'm going to calm it down a little bit. But no, no, no. Preach, please. Preach. Um, I'll tell you what, actually. I think part of it is also people don't know what to do. And all of this stuff, I didn't necessarily know what to do. I kind of just made it up as I was going along. Um, and I feel like sometimes people don't aren't willing to just try things for me i i'll try i didn't know how to secure a um or what it involved to secure a market store i just went online looked it up called someone 
I needed an insurance certificate um, to to do it to secure the the market. I called up a friend who had an insurance certificate because he um, was at the National Film and Television School. I'm not sure if I should say that. I used that certificate and managed to secure the plot for fifteen pounds instead of I think it was one hundred and seventy-five pounds. Um, people aren't willing to just go out on a whim and try something that they haven't done before. I think that just stops them from from even taking that first step. But it was kind of like a snowball effect for me, especially once you put a hard deadline in in the kind of diary in the in the diary. Um, it forces you to figure just figure it out, and I don't think a lot of people um, try to just figure it out, even if it's. Well, Nathan, what was your why? What kept you going? Because a lot of people start and then they realize that there's a few stumbling box hurdles and then they they procrastinate before they stop. They don't just stop. So what was your why? What kept you going? Because I enjoy it. I enjoyed it, um, to be honest with you. I, I suppose the vision of what this thing could be at this point moment in time when you're trying to raise finance you you have a script um you're working with the director who's coming up with the kind of creative so you're going to you're finding locations um you're um maybe holding auditions for cast you're speaking to members of crew um and securing their services you're speaking to set designers etc who are then showing you what it what their plans are for it and what it could look like you're because you're almost it's like almost a bit of jigsaw and you're seeing different bits come together and you're starting to see that picture come together which just keeps you going and again if you have that kind of definitive date in the diary that you're working towards um you want to make sure that it's the best possible version of what it could be um I don't want to put words in your mouth, but listening to what you said close to the introduction, it sounded like you could see yourself actively changing the landscape of British cinema. Changing yeah. what people paid attention to. I mean, it's a big claim. I'm not there yet, but that's that's the goal for me, definitely. Mm. Uh, I want to change the narrative um, of what people like us see on screen or seeing ourselves on screen. Um, mm. And this is a chance to do that. I think I think that particular short film is something that I hope could go go to like a Channel 4 and maybe made into a, a bigger thing, or even go to Netflix, etc. And again, this would, could be a proof of, con- proof of concept to then approach the likes of those people. Um, so yeah, I think... I like the fact that you use the term proof of concept. Because although you're a creative, you use many um, terms which are very ingrained in the business world. Um, but the truth is we're all trying to create a proof of concept. Um, when you're a startup, you're trying to prove that you can sell one. If you can sell one, then you can probably sell 100 or 1,000. Um, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the importance of small film and how that's growing. And I'm really interested in um, your take on how smartphones and YouTube are almost allowing anyone and everyone to broadcast themselves. Um, what is your take on that? Um, which challenges might that bring to you? 
and where do you see that going in the future? Um, I think it's something that I need to embrace. Um, I think me as a filmmaker, I go to, you go to the cinema or you see a film on Netflix and that's your vision of what you think cinema a film should be. Um, however, time has changed. And I was, I was kind of thinking about this question earlier um, and it's a bit like Kodak, um, not embracing kind of digital, et cetera. Um, there are, there's definitely things to take from this new world that we're in and the broadcasters and major, um, TV stations or, or news outlets, etc., are all taking on board these things. Cause I'm thinking wider than film. If you think about the fact that Arsenal fan TV and the rise of all that stuff yeah. is actually impacting Sky Sports yes. and the way they kind of do stuff. Um, the fact that a Shiro story, the, the director can then be given funding from Paramount to then make and release the short film. And I don't know if you've seen recently, but he's set to remake a French film um, called uh, Un Prophet, and I think it's starring Russell Crowe. And I feel like these, ultimately what um, these filmmakers are doing is creating an audience. Um, with very limited resources. Um, the fact that people have kind of followings on social media, etc. I think I could, for example, approach a, a musician who has a pretty decent following on Instagram and offer to do a music video for them. Um, someone who's kind of still on the come up, maybe hasn't got a video out at the moment, but if I kind of approach them and try and um, collaborate with them, that could be a way of increasing my own kind of brand and awareness awareness amongst their followers. Same with maybe using actors who have large Instagram followers. And a lot of, if I think back to my day job, um, a lot of film uh, companies or distributors or um, production companies, sorry, are actually trying to tap into the social media um, kind of celebrities which I still think again that's thinking about the money I, if this person's got millions and millions of followers on Instagram then they're going to fo follow them into the cinema um, whether or not that person can act and whether or not they actually write for the role is another question but I think the major kind of institutions are taking notice of this stuff and like, you'd be a fool if you don't um, do the same and at least incorporate some of that into your own work well, I can hear the moral dilemmas there. Um, I can hear the moral dilemmas in terms of doing what everyone else is doing because it's advantageous and remaining pure to one, the original format of the art and two, to talent. Because like you mentioned, there are people who could suddenly be broadcasted on a screen. A lot of people could watch it. But the entire production's trash and the person can't act. So how do you balance that moral dilemma? So I think I'm stubborn at the moment. I'm kind of going down the other route. But I mean, there's that Jay-Z quote, dumbed down for my audience and double my dollars. And so there is a balance. Between that. I suppose it's the difference between, say, Jay-Z and Nas. Um, so, I mean, I'm trying to get that right. And like I said, maybe incorporate, for example, actors who I think have a very good social media following, but I know can act. Yeah. And I know that they're right for the part. But 
I think there is a happy medium um, similar with kind of musicians that are kind of on the come up. I think I would only approach them if they, if I actually believed that one, I like the music and, and believe in what they're doing and that can help grow together with them. If that makes sense, rather than just looking for anyone um, with a social media following, just kind of selling my services to them. Um, so that's, I don't know, that's how I think I'm trying to navigate that that world. Um, one one thing that I find interesting about the way our audience is engaging with content at the moment links to something Afalabi mentioned to me a couple of years ago. Now we were looking for social media influencers to work with and we were starting to look at their youtube channels and afalabi said that you need to pay attention to the ones who are less polished the ones who um you know they're, they're clearly recording on their kitchen table and don't have very good editing in the background for instance and that kind of linked to trust in the sense of the the content that was less polished that was less manicured seemed to be more trusting or trust um believable to the audience and therefore they engage with it better and that is kind of a, a measurement that we we use when it comes to who we work with are they trusted by their audience i wonder if there's a, a similar element in the film world where we need to ensure that not just the actors in front of the screen but the production company the people behind the screen have a level of trust from the, the people following them? Um, I think, yes, there is something in that. I think that's why user-generated content is becoming so much more popular because it's also maybe not aspirational, but it almost makes it feel more relatable um, to you. I'm not sure how to answer that question. Can you can you repeat the? No, it's, it's it's fine. It was just kind of from from what I've seen in in multiple industries, audiences are a lot less trusting of big business or mm. big production. There's a there's a there's a layer of skepticism when it comes to anything being produced, and that's because we live in an era of fake news. We live in an era of Photoshop and um, uh, reality guy, TV. etc. So, say again. Reality TV. Reality, reality TV that isn't really reality TV, and I wonder whether that's permeating or not into the film industry. If I look at reality TV, that's a good example where we see that some quote-unquote reality TV programs are still super popular, um, even though maybe behind the scenes it's scripted television with a reality TV coating. I yeah. wonder whether there's going to be a shift in the future where our audience is going to be a lot more sceptical of how authentic the content they're receiving are, whether that is scripted television or non-scripted. Another example that we might want to talk about is the messages that we now receive. So we know that content has a bias, maybe it's a political bias, maybe it's an ideological bias. And I'm a lot more aware of that now when I watch television. So when I watch a TV program, I'm aware that, oh, the writer of this, they're a, a right-wing um, supporter. 
or the writer of that or the you know production company by the, behind this is left wing or this was written by the BBC so it's probably going to have a left wing slant so I guess my question is around whether audiences are becoming more savvy to that and you know this is speculation I don't think there's a right or wrong answer there yeah. but I'm wondering whether audiences in general are becoming more conscious of the fact that everybody producing content probably has a bit of an agenda behind it and therefore we shouldn't just trust them at face value. I think the masses don't think that way. I think there is a subsection of people like you that are more are scrutinizing um, content more, but the masses only go to watch a Marvel movie and they don't care what that kind of polit- what the political ideology behind that is. I, I think personally, um, particularly when you're talking about scripted, when you're actually supposed to be suspending your belief and immersing yourself in a kind of imaginary world in the first place, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, a great film makes you forget about everything and just kind of immerses you in that world and makes you forget about what um what statement they're trying to make etc i th- i think personally no i i get you and i think you're right it's maybe i'm a lot more sensitive to it than most but i was watching a television program not too long ago and um the the the, the main uh character in in the program started talking and she just mentioned mansplaining and i was like i just woke up for a second i was like what, what does that mean um um, yeah, it, for for me, it's like there are certain prompts now which remind you that oh, this has probably got a bit of a political slant behind it. Actually, I'll tell you what. Yeah, I I do get that, and I think there are there was a, a film recently um, that came out called Queen and Slim, which was about kind of it kind of flipped the narrative in terms of police shootings, um, whereby a random stop and search, uh, a guy and a girl are on a Tinder date. Um, and there's a struggle and the shoot is actually then, um, so the policeman is actually killed by um, one of the, the, the guy in the car. And they ultimately go on the run and it's a bit of like a Bonnie and Clyde thing. Um, that ha- I think has been received as quite political, particularly with all of the um, kind of mass shootings. But there is an argument to say ultimately it's kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde story as well. It's ultimately the same thing in terms of two fugitives on the run. Um but weaved within it is a political message. And I think you're right, there are some um instances where it's really overt, but I think a really good film um slips the medicine in the candy. Um and shouldn't make you aware of um, what it's doing at the time it's doing it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's, it's almost as if they, I do think some of them are doing it consciously. It's almost as if they're aware that those who will read it will read it, and those who won't read it won't. Um, I haven't seen Queen and Slim, but I imagine there are some people who leave that uh, film and have highly politicized conversations and other people would just say that was an amazing film um when Abby was speaking it took me back to as you mentioned Marvel previously um Captain America Civil War um which I think is very ideological in many respects but as it's Marvel and loads of teenagers are seeing it 
they're just loads of great battles. They don't, they don't understand the political aspects around the film. Mm. Yeah, we, we could go on forever. Um, so just to interject, but that actually goes back to what I was saying before in terms of actually the whole role of, I feel, um, film and cinema is that you take from it what you want. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes those messages are slipped in, um, but you still have the other aspects of it. And so different people are going to take different things from, from the same kind of viewing experience. We, we were desperate to hear your take on what it's like to be a creative, um, especially because it almost fills a void um, within us. But this is expensive lessons. And we couldn't speak to you without asking you what some of your expensive lessons would have been. I imagine there are people who tune in on a weekly basis, literally scribbling down notes, taking down all of our expensive lessons. They can send us checks later. And other people are just laughing at our foolishness. Um, but I'm intrigued. What have been some of your expensive lessons um, as being a filmmaker, as someone within that industry? And what would you do differently if you could go back? I think most the, the expensive lessons I've, I've all kind of derived from the same thing, which is me trying to do everything myself. Um, for example, uh, on set of Alpha and Omega, um, I'd already scoped out the place, found that there was free parking um, where we where we were. But we turned up on a Sunday and there was an African church. Um, <laughs> so the road was fully like full of cars. I hope, you were, I, hope, I hope you were planning on filming that day. Oh, we were filming that thing. So the sound guy had a problem. He was like, why don't you check this place out on a Sunday? But this was, this was in a, um, what's it called? Yeah. One of those hipster kind of... Um, communes where artists are, are have apartments in warehouses but so do African churches now have churches in warehouses um, but yeah that then meant that there was no parking like near and therefore um, I got three people to park in like a three um, sorry a, a kind of shopping centre which had two hours or two hour restriction I then found another car park afterwards um, and basically just proceeded to run between both car parks, driving cars um, back and forth when the time allotted ran out. Um, rather than just paying, I don't know, maybe £10 per car um, in a kind of restricted bay, etc. And here's me thinking I'm trying to save maybe 30 quid, but ultimately I got fines um, because I was slightly late with those timings. Um, so things like that, trying to cut corners because you think you're trying to save even just the smallest fraction, mm. then have bigger implications later on if you if you um, if you get them wrong. So I don't know. For me, it was doing too much myself um, and trying to cut corners are the two things that have incurred the big, most expenses, particularly when filmmaking. Um, yeah, and moving away from almost like financial. Um, expensive lessons. What are the what are the greatest lessons you have learned, whether it be um, in the industry of filmmaking or just um, your own personal journey? What what are some of the greatest lessons you've learned? Um, I think it's delegation. It's kind of harking back to that and not trying to do stuff yourself. But ultimately, when when you're a filmmaker, you are 
well, if you think about a director or even a producer, you are facilitating other people's expertise. So a director will want a scene in a specific location. Um, you find that location for them. But then within that, you then have a set designer who is going to be creating the set. Um, you're an enabler for various different artists. Um, and rather than trying to do their job, you just have to try and facilitate them, give them the resources to do what they do best rather than trying to um, rather than trying to kind of input yourself. That's I think that's the biggest thing for me. The beauty of this is that it touches upon many things that we've spoken about before, which highlights not that we're geniuses, but that many of us make this mistake and because we made those mistakes. Uh, I'm, I'm going to wait a few episodes before I claim that, but we're just going to ride with it for now. Um, there are so many instances where many of us want to do it ourselves, and many of us think that we have to do everything ourselves, and we don't ask for help. Um, recently, Abby and I were involved in a conversation where we wanted someone who we really believed in to just remember that what you've got is powerful, but it will die if you don't ask for help. Um, and I, I love the quote that we ask for help not because we're weak but because we wish to remain strong and I, I wonder whether it's something within our community which almost prevents us from seeking assistance or that we, we feel like we have to do ourselves I think particularly when you're at the stage where I feel like I'm at where you don't necessarily have uh, money to offer you yeah, you just feel like rather than actually um, just asking for help, um, you can just do it yourself. Mm. I think at least that was my mindset. But but again, there's so much goodwill, particularly when you're doing a project where you feel like there's, or where there is vested interests, actually, you are helping that person as well. There, there could be a mutually beneficial way of helping each other um, rather than seeing it. As, rather than just seeing it as a transaction from you to them, it's, it could actually be both ways. That's a big challenge that I experience quite a bit, to be honest. I'll, 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 I'll put myself forward as somebody who struggles with that in terms of seeing that I need the support of the people around me, but feeling too guilty to ask the question. And yeah. sometimes it's not even a case of asking the question. Sometimes it's a case of, people offering me the help that I know that I need and me still saying, no, 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 I'm cool. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And then proceeding to work until three o'clock in the morning because that's the only way I'm going to get everything done. I don't know how we overcome that issue of people actually just want to help you, not because they want anything, but because they want to support you. Mm. And you shouldn't feel guilty or that you're burdening people or allowing them to support you? But I suppose it's about having open conversations, ultimately, knowing that other people feel the same way. Mm. Um, I think, it, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear, actually, even in your, you guys' field, in your different kind of context, it's still the same. So knowing that other people will feel in the same way um, could open the door to make you realise, actually, you know what, it's not, it's not that big a deal. It's not as... Because you're kind of making it in your own mind. Unfortunately, I think it's so ingrained that we are going to have to make a conscious effort to not teach our children to do it. 
um, because we're all grown now. Um, we, we all have beards. <laughs> and greys are coming. Uh, they're already there, man. I've got, I've got a couple. I know I've got a couple. And I think because of our... Whether it be our, our nature or our nurture, it's, it's established within us. And I think we have to ensure that those who come after us don't only know what we know, which is you can ask for help, but they action what we know, which is actually asking for help. Mm. So you, you said it so perfectly, there was nothing I could add to that. That was a beautiful moment. That was a, that was a jingles. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I have enjoyed that. Nathan, thank you, thank you, thank you so, so much. Um, yeah, I, 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 part of me doesn't want to end it right now, but we've had so much positive feedback about the shorter um, episode lengths. I, I do want to just give you a little bit of time just to go and just to share um, your most recent work once again, anything which is coming up in the future, and also where people can find you. So, um, Nathan, uh, what's happened in the past? What things are you working on in the future? Where can people find you? How can they support? Um, so, in terms of the past, uh, to be honest with you, I don't actually have anything online apart from one music video I did four years ago. Um, the, the film Alpha and Omega, which was the most recent thing that I produced, um, is currently on the short film festival circuit, so it's not um, online. Um, but it is something actually I, I feel like I need to work on because some of the stuff I've done is just sitting there and actually could just be online and out there for people to discover me. So that's a learning in myself. So if I'm going to do stuff like this, there should be content that people should be able to find. Especially um, during the season of COVID. Um, yeah, quick exactly. side note, um, I don't know if you've been watching The Last Dance, um, but they strategically yes. put that out when there was no sport on television. Yeah. So they know that people are watching. So if you've got that content, which you know you do, putting it out there now is a fantastic opportunity. But continue. Um, in terms of what's coming up, I think... I mean, one of the lessons I'm learning is that taking, what, four or five months to raise finance for a film that costs five grand, and then, because you're on a budget, spend another two years editing that film is a very long way to learn one lesson in terms of one project. So at the moment, I'm trying to develop my craft through music videos, so... Um, that's what I'm working on at the moment, doing a few music videos whilst also writing um, another short, which I want to do on a much lower budget, going back to what you guys were saying before about kind of kind of DIY, lower budget stuff. I think that's definitely a way to learn fast, try something, fail, improve, and, and learn those expensive lessons quicker. Um, so, so I'm kind of doing that. In terms of where you can find me, uh, my social media on Instagram is Nathan underscore Kwesi, K-W-E-S-I. Um, and that's on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and my production company uh, handle is at Smashed Screen Films. Um, so that's where you can find me on Instagram, not Twitter for the production company. You mentioned you're spending some time doing music videos. Is there any other short form content that you've produced or that you're interested in producing? Uh, well, at the moment, I've so I've just done a corporate video. Um, so my girlfriend does global events, which is kind of on pause at the moment. Um, but we did an event 
um, kind of a promo video for her event uh, two months, two, three months ago. Um, and the idea was we we're going to do a few more over the course of this year, but they've all been pushed back to next year. So I'm doing that, which will provide an income, also doing the music video stuff to just kind of work on my craft and then writing um, other shorts, which I can try and do on a, on a low budget. Okay, so if there's anybody listening who has got a business idea, startup idea that wants a glossy video to, to accompany their vision, reach out to Nathan. We'll help yeah. you put it together and uh, yeah, help you help you get more eyes on what you're doing. Thanks for the plug, man. <laughs> all day, all day, no problem, bro. <laughs> Listen, Nathan, uh, lastly for me, just thank you, thank you so much. We genuinely appreciate your time. Um, it was really useful for me to hear that some of these principles are they, they transcend industries and you might know them but you have to continue to be reminded of them so effective budgeting diligent research um knowing the importance of delegating and not having to rely on yourself so yeah thank you for that abby yeah same um i was taking notes all the way through this i was very happy to kind of take a back seat and just listen to some of the gems through this. I think there's a lot more to discuss in this, so I think we're going to have to have you back. Yeah. <laughs> One of the key questions I think I want to discuss next time is the impact of data and capturing data in the film industry. I want to definitely yeah. pick your brain on what that looks like and how that might change going forward. But yeah, just really enjoyed it. Always fun to catch up and a lot of interesting, expensive lessons learned. Thank you guys for having me. No problem, man. Thank you, Nathan. And I just want to close out with a couple of announcements from Expensive Lessons. Um, so for those of you on Instagram, Expensive Lessons now has an IG page. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna maybe I'll put some sound effects in the background just so <laughs> I'll do the bombs, I'll do the Westwood bombs as well. Um so yeah, we've now got an IG page. You can follow us on expensive underscore lessons on Instagram. Make sure you follow. Make sure you comment under some of the posts that we've already made. Start the conversation. I really want to have some interesting conversations about business, about entrepreneurship in general. So you know, reach us, get in touch with us um, there. And the other announcement is on the 7th of June, Afalabi and I are going to be recording a special episode called expensive questions you guys have told us enough about answering questions at the beginning of our podcast which mean that our podcast lasts about two hours so we're going to dedicate a whole episode to answering your questions and we're actually going to turn it into a bit of a competition so if you follow us on instagram and then comment under any of our posts with a question you will be entered into a prize draw any of the questions that we answer during that episode will get a 20 pound amazon voucher and you can ask as many questions as you want so if you ask four questions and all four of your questions get answered on that episode then we are sending you four 20 pound amazon vouchers so watch this space we are looking forward to that because we're just going to let loose and we can go as long as we want because you guys are asking the questions so we're only doing our jobs in answering them and uh, yeah really looking forward to that one thank you people i'm really really excited about the instagram page simply because there are little nuggets 
Um, some of the videos, just listening back to them, have been hilarious. And there have been occasions where I've listened back and I thought, Abby, did you say that? Like, why, why are we not working together? Oh, we, we are working together, thank God. Um, yeah, it's, they're gold. They're brilliant. Um, so tune in, people. Thank you, man. Another great episode. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone. Stay tuned for next week for more expensive lessons. Peace. Take care, everyone. Thanks, guys.